Okay, well welcome to lecture number two, Which Liberty? It is uh, day 21 on the self-quarantine count, three weeks today. Uh, I'm doing okay. I hope everybody out there is doing okay. Uh, my teenage kids are getting a little cabin crazed, but they're doing crazy things like uh, figuring out how to make the ultimate waffles that apparently involves making pearl sugar, which is some kind of long, slow process of turning sugar and water into, I don't even know what. So that's what's going on here, uh, just outside my dining room. Uh, but today we're gonna focus on the question of liberty. Obviously, if we're gonna be discussing liberalism and a liberal family of ideas, and liberalism is the political viewpoint that liberty is the most important value, and when there are conflicts uh, and trade-offs, liberty is the one that gets prioritized, we need to know what it is that we're talking about. What does liberty mean? What does it look like? What are its contours? Now, the title of the lecture is Which Liberty? And that should imply that like, there's a variety of different uh, approaches to it. There's gonna be no resolution today. I'm not gonna say, well, here's the liberty that we're gonna be talking about because uh, different liberal thinkers, of course, have different approaches. But what I'm gonna lay out for you today are the sort of dimensions of liberty, the different things that go into a full understanding of it. And what that will allow us to do is it will allow us to understand when two different thinkers have a different approach to liberty, what is it about their uh, ideas that actually connect and differ. So mostly, I'll kind of preview the end of this, Mostly what it is, is that different liberal thinkers are gonna have a different balance of the elements that are necessary to actually have a meaningful form of liberty in the, in the world. So I'm gonna to talk today about what those elements are and how they connect and how they work together and how they conflict and how those things are balanced. Start off, I already have up here a little bit on the board, a definition of uh, liberty that's uh, slightly more helpful than just the idea that, well, what is liberty? It's freedom. Well, what is freedom? It's liberty, right? You go around and around. What does it mean to have liberty? Well, you're free. Free of what? From what? To what? Uh, so it's, the word freedom is a synonym, but it doesn't take us very far. Liberty understood as individual sovereignty is, again, that's just, it's two words. It's more words, but uh, still just words, but it gets us a little closer to a crisp idea of what liberty is. And I have in parentheses here the right to rule yourself. That's what sovereignty is. Sovereignty is uh, um, the power to rule, or the power to make rules. Uh, and this term comes from uh, a sort of uh, the pre-liberal political thought. The sovereign was the king, and the king had the right to make rules. And so sovereignty was the right to make rules. And the notion of liberty was essentially in a transfer of power from the sovereign, from the king, to the individual. And that the individual was in fact king of himself, right? And then certainly in the Enlightenment period, uh, it was intended to be a sexist thing, but uh, the individual is sovereign of themselves. Uh, when you rule yourself, when you uh, decide for yourself what you're going to do, uh, make rules for yourself, make individual decisions that maybe break the rules you set for yourself, remake those rules. Uh, those rules are oriented in a direction that uh, is intended to take you towards a conception of the good, like what you think a good life is, and so coming up with your own conception of the good life and 
then making decisions uh, and uh, uh, taking actions and setting rules for yourself that move you in that direction and then either revising your conception of the good and moving in a different direction or revising the rules uh, and the decisions that you make because you see that you're going away from instead of towards your conception of the good. That's all what it means to be a sovereign individual. And a sovereign individual is somebody who actually has meaningful liberty. Now, that tells us a little bit more about what liberty is. Liberty is individual sovereignty. It's the right to make rules for yourself. But then that raises the big question. Okay? That tells us what liberty is sort of broadly and generally. And that's, a, that's helpful. It's better than just saying, well, liberty is freedom. Right? Liberty is ruling yourself. And that involves quite a bit of stuff. Coming up with the conception of the good, coming up with the plan, coming up with the rules, making decisions, doing, revising all of that stuff, deciding uh, my conception of the good. I was moving towards uh, wealth and fame, but I decided that wasn't the thing I wanted, so I wanted, I wanted serenity and happiness. That uh, free individual is capable of deciding to make that change. Or I was moving towards my conception of the good was serenity and happiness, and yet the way that I was making decisions were taking me away from that instead of towards that, so I'm going to change path. I'm going to do different things. Uh, that's a sovereign individual. What is necessary to do that? What is necessary to rule yourself? There are conditions that are required for individuals to be able to do that, right? You can't just say, okay, you're a sovereign individual, go, right? I mean, you can say that, but uh, you're not actually going to get people who are living out this, you know, more elaborated form of liberty. If, if liberty is just freedom, just be free, just do whatever you want, right? Just do what you want. Uh, then really there's no conditions because people can just go do what they want and uh, as long as no one is enslaving them, essentially they're free. But that's why we need, in fact, a better definition of what liberty is than just calling it a synonym of freedom and saying that liberty means doing what you want. Uh, liberty means ruling yourself. Slightly different than doing what you want uh, and comes with conditions. So, what is necessary to rule yourself? There are two main conditions that are necessary to rule yourself uh, and those are a lack of interference by others and resources and options. I'll start over here. If you don't have meaningful choices, you might be uh, using your free will. You might be saying, okay, I'm going to walk across the room. I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to go over here, right? Uh, that's free will, right? I think, anyway, I'm going to toss the chocolate in the air. I mean, and there are going to be people who say we don't really have free will, that all this stuff is determined, that the reason why at 1140 on day 21 of self-quarantine I tossed the chalk up in the air a couple times is because of atoms smashing around, and the universe is just one big clockwork that determines all this stuff, and we, don't, we, we have the illusion of free will, we have the subjective experience of actually making choices for ourselves, I'm going to throw the chalk again, there it is, but we don't really. That question, the whole question of free will, we're going to, like, we're going to set that aside for the entire course. We're going to assume that we have free will and that when we make choices that they actually come from ourselves and not from the universe just working out this sort of predetermined clockwork thing. But even if we do have free will and we exercise it, I, I walk over here, I turn, I show you my profile, I scratch my beard, I do all this stuff. Like, I don't know why I'm doing any of this stuff. It's a little weird, uh, because especially because I'm just talking to a phone, there's nobody in the room. It makes it actually weirder to do those weird things for me. But I'm doing all this stuff. 
do I actually have meaningful liberty? Am I really ruling myself? Uh, you might say, well, sure, you're just, you're, <laughs> there you are in your dining room with a piece of chalk and a chalkboard and an iPhone. You're, doing, you're, you're, you're a free individual. You're doing your own thing. Sure, but how meaningful is that? How important is any of this stuff? You know, it's, it's, it's great. It's nice to be able to do what I want to do, but what really matters are the choices that impact our ability to move towards our conception of the good, that uh, enable us to live what we consider to be the good life, to devise uh, a plan and to uh, form a conception of the good with a capital G. This is what's, my good is happiness and serenity, and I'm gonna make my choices uh, in that way. If you don't even know that there are different conceptions of the good, then how can you be really uh, choosing a conception of the good? How can you be said to actually be forming your own conception of the good? It's the kind of thing where you, you know, might say, well, I'm seeking serenity and happiness. But if I didn't know any other life plan, if I didn't know that there were other options, if I didn't know that uh, a person could choose a different set of goals or values for their life, how free am I really, right? And honestly, I, growing up, being raised, uh, I was uh, kind of, I would say, demonstrated to and taught overtly that happiness was really the purpose of life, right? That was what you were doing. You were trying to be happy. Um, I added serenity later, but if I had gone through my entire life just saying happiness is my goal, that's what I'm moving towards, and how can I achieve that happiness for myself? How can I become happier than I am? How can I sustain my happiness? I would be making choices and I would be pursuing that life plan, but if there weren't options, if I had never been aware of the fact that there were other values or other goals that I could pursue, we could definitely say to that extent that I'm not a fully free individual, right? I have some level of freedom. I'm freedom-ish because I am making choices to move me towards that goal. And I'm evaluating how well the choices that I make actually do make me happy or not happy. Like at a certain point in my life, I'm like, I'm miserable. Why? I'm, I'm supposed to be trying to be happy. I'm miserable. Oh, right. I'm making these bad choices and I'm going to make a different set of choices. That is a free person for sure. When you stop and you say, wow, I'm, I'm just moving away from my life goal. I'm moving away from what my conception of the good is instead of towards it. Uh, that's... I have to change things. And even if you make new decisions and screw up and continue to move farther away instead of closer to, that's actually what a free person is doing, right? Just because you have the right to rule yourself doesn't mean you're actually going to succeed. Uh, freedom is not an end state. It's a process. Uh, it's a process value. You get to be making your own decisions and evaluating where you are and making new choices. And uh, you can even reevaluate what your conception of the good is. Now, to get back to this uh, concept, if you don't have options, if, you, if you're not aware of the fact that, well, hell, you could actually, instead of orienting your life towards happiness, you could orient your life towards service to others. You could orient your life towards accumulating power and wealth. You could orient your life towards leaving a lasting uh, legacy. You could orient yourself towards um, you know, being uh, famous. These are all different conceptions of the good. And in fact, you know, that's, that's not the exhaustive list. That's just off the top of my head. Uh, you could orient, you know, orient yourself towards being spiritually unified with the universe. Uh, there are so many different conceptions of the good. If you don't have the capacity to conceptualize different 
ideas of the good, to posit them for yourself as maybe what you want to do, and then to choose one of those conceptions of the good, knowing that you could always change it at a later time, then you're not really free in a deep and important way. Without options, at every level of what you're doing as a free individual, the, uh, what's your concept of the good, what choices are you able to make, and I'll talk about that in just a second, but you absolutely need to have options. Where do you get options from? Options come from having resources. Now, the example that I just gave you is really uh, the resources that you need to have options for a conception of the good uh, is some kind of education and exposure to a different set of ideas. So one of the, definitely one of the most important resources is education. And education in the most generic, broad sense of having exposure to ideas and developing certain kind of intellectual skills. So education is exposure to ideas and certain intellectual skills. If you're raised in a way where there's only one conception of the good that you're ever exposed to and it's reinforced to you and essentially you never have any exposure to other ideas, right? you're supposed to live to be happy. And that was the message I got growing up and it's probably the message that a lot of you got growing up. It's not a wrong message. Uh, and it doesn't mean that the message that you get when you're growing up can't be your conception of the good uh, long term uh, or you're unfree. It can be. But unless you actually are exposed to other ideas and then have the intellectual skills to be able to evaluate this kind of thing, and you don't have to do it explicitly. You don't just sit down and say, okay, what is my conception of the good, capital G good? What am I, what am I orienting my life towards? You don't actually have to be that overt or explicit. I mean, it, it, it's helpful for sure. Um, I think it's helpful anyway, I, but I have a philosophical bent. You, you can, there are many ways to reflect on, evaluate, and either uh, uh, continue to accept or adapt your conception of the good that don't involve sitting around being very philosophical about it. But I'll, I'll just kind of break it out that way uh, because one, that's how I do things, uh, and two, I think it's helpful to just talk about it that way. But just know that you don't have to have a philosophical bent. That's not one of the necessary intellectual skills. You just have to be able to evaluate your own life. You have to be able to be reflective in whatever way uh, you are being reflective. And I, one of the things to sort of you know, note and, and, and acknowledge where we are in the world right now, I'm quarantined. Most of you are probably quarantined. We're, uh, um, uh, have a shelter in place order. We're isolated from each other. Our calendars are gutted. Our to-do lists are, for a lot of people, uh, are severely reduced. Many, many people, not everybody, certain people are out there doing tons of stuff uh, for society and being extremely busy, but many, many people right now are having a chance to actually stop, slow down, and reflect on their lives. Uh, and the ability to do that is giving a lot of people the chance to you know, ask these deeper, bigger questions of like, okay, what am I really supposed to be doing in this world? What, what do I want to be doing? Am I moving towards that? Am I, am I using the tools and resources that are available to me in the, the proper way? It's, we're living in a time where a lot of people are actually getting a chance to do, in a very philosophical way, what free individuals do just as a matter of course, which is not always, but potentially always paying attention to what am I doing? Why am I moving towards this? Happiness, is that really the thing? Maybe the highest good for me is 
seeking spiritual oneness with the universe. Or maybe the highest good for me is, is serving others. Or maybe the highest good for me is actually power and influence. Like, forget about happiness. Like, I want to have power. I want to lead. I want to be in control of things, and I want to leave a lasting legacy, right? Um, you need exposure ideas and intellectual skills to do that. You also, in order to then make, a, make your uh, decisions that move you towards your conception of the good, these, this is your instrumental rationality, right? The, the form of rationality I've been talking about is essentially, think of it as your uh, value rationality or your uh, uh, expressive rationality or your philosophical rationality. The ability to, to, to weigh different conceptions of the good, to know that there are different ones, to make a decision about it. Then, once you've settled on one, and you can always adapt it later, but once you've settled on one, you know, oh, okay, I want, I want, I don't, happiness, you know, I was raised with that idea, but really what I think is important is achieving spiritual oneness with the universe and having that kind of serenity. And maybe, okay, happiness too. It's like I want both of those things. So I've changed my conception of the good uh, by adding something to it. But as I said earlier, even if you stick with the conception of the good that you were raised with, as long as you've actually confronted other ideas and made a decision for yourself instead of uh, just essentially acted out uh, the life plan, the life goal that was given to you by your parents or by, by the family that raised you, uh, even if you accept the same one, if you yourself have reflected on it and done so knowing that there are other options, then you still are ruling yourself. Right? Uh, the only way you're not ruling yourself is if you basically just, without ever conceiving of a different path, you just follow the path that was laid out before you. But once you have a goal, once you have a conception of the good, then you need to make decisions that move you towards that. And you also then need the ability to be able to evaluate how successfully those decisions are moving you in that direction. Like, okay, I want to be happy and serene, and I want to have a life partner so that I can have somebody who's there with me, and we can have joy, and we can have kids, and we can build a family, and all that stuff. And then you find somebody, you fall in love, you do that thing, and then you find yourself five years later or ten years later, you find yourself miserable. You have to be able to look at that and say, okay, am I moving towards or away from my conception of the good? I actually feel like I'm moving away from it instead of towards it. I need to be able to change. Right? Both the, this sort of expressive rationality uh, or philosophical rationality that decides on the conception of the good and this instrumental rationality that actually um, tr uh, makes decisions that move us towards and that evaluate whether we are, we are actually moving towards, uh, both of these are uh, uh, forms of rationality that require exposure to ideas and intellectual skills. Obviously different intellectual skills, right? To be able to evaluate progress towards a goal, that's instrumental rationality. That's different than the ability to be able to sort of weigh and decide on different conceptions of the good. But no matter what you're doing as a free individual, you need certain things. Now, it's for sure the case that you need some kind of education. Uh, and again, only in the most generic sense. It might mean be that you need actually a specific kind of education in order to be able to, to do this in the modern world, right? To be able to uh, get exposed to ideas, like now ideas just come at you, right? But then to exposure to ideas, uh, if you're overexposed, right, if you just have all this information, all this stuff coming to you, some of the intellectual skills you now need are different than you would have needed 100 years ago when the ideas came at you very slowly. They came primarily in books or they came from uh, uh, people uh, who, you, who you trusted or teachers or uh, mentors. 
the pace of information, the volume of information, the diversity of information means that we now need critical thinking skills. We need to be able to uh, evaluate much more critically the information that's coming to us than people 100 years ago did. Uh, because we're getting so many different pieces of uh, information, there's so much more diversity, some of it's complete bullshit, some of it's extremely profound, how do you know the difference? You, you, you don't just, you're not just born with the ability to uh, uh, stand in this fast, giant, 100 mile an hour stream of information that we live in uh, in the 21st century and be able to make it make sense and work for you. So what these are, especially the intellectual skills, is really going to be historically determined. Um, there might also be other resources that you need besides education, right? Uh, we know you need some form of education, but what else, right? In order to have realistic options, do you need other things? Uh, and if you do, what are they? So a big question is, what other resources? And this particular question is going to generate a lot of different answers. And that's already a fork in the road for how we're going to have a variety of different conceptions of liberty, like which liberty. There are people who believe that one of the other resources that you need in order to be a person who actually rules themselves, who is deciding among options available to you instead of just basically going along the preset path, and even though you have free will, you're really just uh, you're living a life that's been laid out before you, or you're living a life where when you make choices, you don't have realistic options to do something else. Uh, so one of those is uh, healthcare, one of the resources that some people say that we need, right? Uh, and part of the reason why they say that, I should say part, I would say the, a large part of the reason why they say that is if you don't have physical well-being, if you don't have mental well-being, you're not really able to rule yourself, right? If you're constantly battling illness, if you're constantly in pain, if you're constantly, uh, you know, uh, uh, emotionally uh, distraught and, uh, you know, are, are just having panic attacks or whatever it happens to be, if, if you don't have physical or mental well-being, then you can't really be ruling yourself because all you're doing is dedicating yourself to sort of raw survival. Uh, and when all you're doing is surviving, you're making choices in the narrow sense of exercising your free will, right? But you're not really exercising options. And so there's a big difference between making choices and exercising options. We're all always making choices, right? I'm going to choose to move over here, and then I'm going to choose to move over here. And I, and I told myself actually to stand more in front over here so that you guys can all see the board. I know I'm still on camera. Um, I'm telling myself this. I'm making choices. And in, to, to, in a certain sense, I'm a free individual when I'm doing that. But it's really not a very meaningful version of uh, being a person who rules themselves unless you're actually then also exercising options. Right? So just in this particular context, uh, I am doing video lectures to uh, uh, handle this whole remote instruction thing that we have this term. Other professors are doing Zoom meetings, other professors are making audio recordings, or uh, some people are probably uh, you know, putting on puppet shows or giving concerts. Uh, I don't know what other people are doing. Honestly, I've seen a few examples of innovative professors doing things. But um, I am uh, making a choice, but what I'm really doing is I'm exercising an option because I have, just at the, at the sort of basic level, I have 
two ways that I could be delivering, at least, I should say, at least two ways that I could be delivering this course to you remotely. One is onto my iPhone, which is going to go onto my computer and get put on YouTube and put on D2L so that you guys can see me lecturing in my dining room. I also have the option of having real-time classroom meetings through Zoom meetings. So since I do have options, and clearly I need resources to be able to do this, right? if I didn't have a phone, I couldn't do this. Uh, now, the university has made sure that uh, professors are, have access to, and I'm hoping that they're doing this for students as well, uh, access to the resources that we need in order to be able to do this, but that actually just points out how important it is to have resources to have options. If I only had um, a, uh, a laptop with no video camera on it but a microphone, I could do audio Zoom meetings. And if I chose to do that, am I really free? I chose it, but it was my only option. I have to do remote instruction because of the coronavirus lockdown, and I only have one way of doing it. I have at least two ways, and that means that I do have options. And this definitely demonstrates that uh, resources are necessary. T to get back to the question of healthcare, if I am constantly having to uh, dedicate the resources that I have to paying for the doctor, going to uh, um, uh, healthcare services, being knocked down because I'm, uh, because I'm sick and I'm bedridden. If that's the case, I'm making choices, right? Like if you're bedridden, you're choosing to be bedridden as opposed to get up and be miserable. Uh, but how much of a choice is that really? It's really, it's technically a free, an act of free will, but it's not really a broader act of individual sovereignty. Uh, so. Some people would say that one of the resources that we absolutely need to be able to be making free choices is, is uh, physical and mental well-being. And those things, to some people, they just get them, right? Other people, that requires, most people, most of us, that requires some kind of resources. And so uh, this question, what are the things? Healthcare is one of them. Uh, um, opportunities is another that is on the list um, of resources that, are, that some people think are necessary and other people don't think are necessary. Uh, what else, right? What else goes on this list? Part of what people who value liberty and share that commitment to liberty are going to disagree about is what are the resources that are necessary in order to be able to actually have real options to exercise. Now, I've left a little space up here because what I, I haven't yet named this. Um, this is what most people call the positive side of liberty. This is positive liberty. It's the ability to do things, right? So it's, it's uh, sometimes known as freedom to, right? Because what you have is you have the ability to actually make choices that are meaningful for you as opposed to just basically useless exercises of free will. Um, in the reading, uh, Dewey refers to this as effective freedom. And I, I, I'm going to put that in parentheses because the dominant way of talking about this is positive. You'll see this term more than you'll see effective freedom. But I think Dewey's term effective freedom is actually a really good one because it points out that in order to actually have liberty that is meaningful, right, that is an, that, that's effective out in the world, you can't just say, oh, hey, go ahead, go make choices, right? There, there are preconditions that are necessary, and those preconditions are certain uh, access to certain resources that actually give you meaningful options. Right. So positive is freedom 
or excuse me, the ability to exercise options. If we don't have the resources necessary to do that, then we have the most basic form of free will, but we don't actually have a meaningful form of liberty. We're not really ruling ourselves. We are being ruled by necessity. If you have to dedicate your time and energy and resources to just staying alive, to just staying healthy, um, if you take a job because it's the only job available to you, and if you don't take that job, then you will starve, or your family will starve, or you will, uh, you will suffer immeasurably, then did you really freely choose that job? Right? Now, maybe nobody put a gun to your head and said, you need to take this job for minimum wage that works 60 hours a week and is totally mind-numbing mind and doesn't give you any satisfaction and basically sucks up all your energy so you can't do anything else. Nobody held a gun to your head and said, do that. But if your survival depends on having some kind of minimal income, and that's the only job that, that uh, is available to you, did you really freely choose that? It was an act of free will, but it was not an act of individual sovereignty. So it's essential that we have some level of resources. Um, the other thing that you have to have, the other condition, is lack of interference by others. And this usually goes by the name of negative liberty. And Dewey refers to it as formal freedom. And part of the reason why he does that is that, and I think that's a less helpful term than effective, but is that usually the lack of interference by others comes through certain rules that are made and enforced by uh, society or by the government that stop other people from uh, uh, interfering with you. So, for example, the, you know, the law that says that you can't steal people's property, that you can't attack them physically, that you can't kill them, that you can't enslave them, these are all formal freedoms in the sense that they, they prevent others from interfering with you. But to Dewey, that's, that's just the, the very most basic precondition. You actually have to have other things to have an effective form of liberty. But most philosophers refer to uh, this liberty as uh, negative liberty, not as formal, though you'll see it in both ways. And I, I tend to refer to this as negative liberty. Lack of interference by others. This is way easier to understand, and it's way more uh, sort of central to the, I would say, dominant conception of what liberty is. And I probably should have started with it instead of starting over on this particular side, because historically, the very first conception of what liberty was, was negative liberty. Uh, early in the Enlightenment, early Enlightenment thinkers like Locke, to them, liberty was lack of interference by others. And uh, there, there wasn't this sense among early uh, liberal thinkers that resources and options were necessary. As long as other people left you alone, you were free. And I, uh, I did talk about all this stuff because I wanted to indicate, and you should know, that that's not enough, right? This is a necessary condition, but not sufficient. And I believe that's actually something, in a close paraphrase of something that uh, Dewey talks about. Negative liberty is necessary, but not sufficient. Now, it's necessary, and it seems relatively simple, but it's actually kind of far from simple once you start looking at what it really means for other people to not interfere with your choices. At a basic level, it's straightforward, right? People can't enslave you, they can't kill you, they can't physically attack you, um, they can't uh, uh, you know, harm you in direct physical ways. Are there other ways, though, that people could interfere 
with your, with your life that would undermine your freedom, other than these kind of direct physical assaults? And I think the answer is absolutely, right? If uh, somebody psychologically manipulates you into making a choice, but they never touched you, they just manipulate you by talking to you about, and, and saying certain things and exploit certain weaknesses in your intellectual skills, um, or they create a situation where you're afraid and uh, your fear makes you stay away from a certain set of choices and go to, go to another set of choices, uh, then you really have been interfered with, even though that person has never physically touched you. And I, and, uh, I hope that you guys haven't had too many experiences with psychological and emotional manipulation, but uh, you probably have, and if not, you've seen it in other people, and you can acknowledge and recognize, we all can, that that is interference by other people. So, interference is, I'm gonna box this off here to keep the board at least a little clean. Interference <coughs> is physical for sure, but it can easily be non-physical as well. Now that raises a tough question, which is what kinds of activities by other people are going to count as these non-physical forms of interference? And also, what forms of physical activity are going to count as interference even though they don't touch you, right? Like I could do something physically, it's not emotional or, or psychological, I could, I, could, I could take an action, right? And uh, even though you are not physically touched, it could easily interfere with your free choices. So, uh, for example, like if you guys were in the room, if there was a group of people in the room, and I uh, am a person who, who really, like, one of the things that gives me great joy is to cut loose and uh, um, kind of uh, blow off steam is I have a big, uh, big sword, a big hooked, you know, medieval-looking sword, and I like to just swing it around and do a dance and, like, do all kinds of crazy stuff with it, that just help, has me blow off steam. Like, I just, that's me being me, right? It, it isn't, by the way. This is a totally cooked up example. I do not have a big sword and I don't blow off steam in that particular way. But you can easily imagine that that's a, a true thing for, for, for certain people. And if, we're, if we want people to be able to rule themselves, doing what helps you blow off steam, particularly if one of your part of your conception of the good is to be happy and serene, you need to blow off steam. If waving around and doing some kind of, you know, uh, uh, crazy dance with or some kind of uh, fake swordplay with this giant gleaming sword, if that's what does it for you, in a free society, we want to let that person do that. But if I do that in a room full of people and those people are sitting there going, wow, like that, his hands are getting kind of sweaty and that knife looks like it could fly out of his hands at any moment. And, you know, like I'm really afraid of, uh, of uh, getting hurt by this, but I never physically touch you and my knife never, uh, or sword never slips out of my hands and never, never hurts anybody. Um, it's a potential form of interference with your freedom, right? You're not, you know, like, and you leave the room. You know, did you freely leave the room? Obviously, uh, you, it was an act of free will, it was a choice, but did I interfere with your life path by creating this environment of fear, which I didn't uh, actually ever physically harm anybody? Like, if I punch somebody and then they leave the room, obviously that's a form of interference in their freedom, right? Their, their life path would have gone a different way if I hadn't physically assaulted them. But the knife thing creates enough fear. There are going to be 
lots and lots of uh, examples of people acting freely, making free choices, and those free choices are going to interfere with the free choices of other people. And if we're going to have a meaningful form of liberty, and particularly a meaningful form of negative liberty, we have to say there are certain uh, actions that are not allowed to be taken by a free individual because they undermine the freedom of somebody else. Your freedom cannot impinge someone else's freedom. You, excuse me, you acting on your freedom can't undermine somebody else's freedom. Uh, I mean, to you, that's not a problem. But systemically, of course, if I can do that to you, then you can do that to me, and uh, we're going to end up in a society that is not a free society. If, if people are interfering with or, or scaring or actually physically harming each other all the time through their free actions, I air quote that because uh, they're making free choices, but a meaningful conception of liberty has to limit other people's liberty. Lack of interference by others means there has to be a limit to individual choices. And the question then becomes, where should that boundary be, right? Now I'm going to underline this, too, because we have, once we start breaking out, like, well, what does actual ruling yourself look like, and we see that there's, that there's two sides of it, there's people not interfering with you, and there's the need to have resources so you can have meaningful options. We have two big questions that have to get asked. Where is that boundary, and what other resources besides education? And also, what type of education and how much? Different people are going to answer these questions differently, and that's going to provide for a different conception of liberty as people answer these differently. So, which liberty? There's really one schema, and these are the two sides, right? I'm, 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 I'm taking up all the board, I'm not leaving any space because there's nothing, there's no need for anything else. There's the two sides of liberty, the negative side and the positive side. This is a necessary condition, but not sufficient. This is a, a necessary condition, but not sufficient. Together, they are sufficient, right? If we have both, other people not getting in our way, not forcing us to do things, not scaring us into do thing, doing things, not manipulating us into doing things, then we are free, but not fully, unless we also have resources and options. Now, if we have resources and options, but other people are pushing us to, into certain of those options, then we are not free either, right? So there are two ways to be unfree, which means that there are two conditions that are necessary to be met in order to actually have freedom. But each of those conditions, the negative condition and the positive condition, raises a, a, a question that people can and will answer quite differently. Um, let me give you a, a, what I think is a better example for how treacherous and difficult this particular question is than the sword-waving one, which is obviously just a weird example. Um, when I was growing up and when I was in college, uh, cigarette smoking occupied a very different place in our society than it does today. Uh, you could smoke anywhere, and you could smoke on airplanes, you could smoke in college classrooms. Uh, I had professors who smoked, right? Uh, I don't think we were allowed to smoke as students, though I don't really know, but I, had, I know that the professors either were allowed to smoke or we all just accepted it because I had professors who just smoked away. Like, they smoked at us, basically, because they were just pacing around, smoking cigarettes, sitting in a smoke-filled room. Uh, bars and restaurants were full of smoke. Airplanes were full of smoke. It was just one of the things that uh, you live with. People knew that cigarette smoking was uh, harmful to people who smoked. Uh, 
But in a free society, one of the things you do is you allow people to make choices that harm themselves, but don't harm other people. And you can, the reason why we let people harm themselves is because they're pursuing a conception of the good, and we can't, we can't tell them in a free society what their conception of the good is. Right? If you're a cigarette smoker, and you're not fooled, like you don't think, oh, those doctors on the commercial said this is healthy. Boy, it doesn't seem healthy, but they say it's healthy. That's manipulation, right? But if you actually know that smoking cigarettes is going to shorten your life statistically and almost certainly going to uh, reduce your quality of life, and you choose to do it anyway, uh, as long as you have the requisite intellectual skills and exposure to ideas uh, that makes this an actual choice, as opposed to just, well, you know, I started smoking at age 10 because my parents both smoked and I saw people smoking all around me and I've been smoking my whole life and I'm addicted and I don't really want to be doing this. That's a, that's a person who's unfree, right? And addiction is, a, is one way in which we are definitely not free because we don't really have meaning, the ability to uh, exercise our options, right? But if somebody chooses to smoke and they can say either, they say this out loud or it's just implicit in the way they act that, you know, like, okay, it makes me happy to smoke and I know it shortens my life, but my conception of the good is not to live as long as possible. My conception of the good is to get whatever pleasure I can get now because life is uncertain and, and uh, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. Totally fine, right? Uh, it, it might be hard, it might be difficult in a free society, in a liberty-loving society, to watch people who make choices that you wouldn't make, that you think maybe are bad for them, but you have to acknowledge, okay, that person is acting towards a different conception of the good. Now, if their conception of the good is to live a long, healthy life, then they are actually making a decision that moves them away from their conception of the good instead of towards it. But again, in a liberty-loving society, we leave it up to people to evaluate, to use their instrumental rationality to figure out whether they're moving towards or away from it. And you know, people might, a lot of people who smoke are like, okay, this is not good for me, and I'm going to try to quit, right? Um, in a, in a uh, paternalist society, a society that is not freedom-loving but is well-being oriented, you would tell people, you'd say, hey, smoking is shortening your life and uh, it is making you unhealthy. You can't do it. And the person would be like, but I don't care about having a long and healthy life. My conception of the good is uh, to get as much pleasure as possible in the moment because we could all die. No, you have to live towards this conception of the good. That's not a liberty-loving uh, conversation right there. That's a, that's a, that's a paternalist conversation. Uh, so, we let people do things that are harmful to themselves, but we can't let people do things that are harmful to others, right? Because as soon as they're harmful to others, then they're interfering with other people. Then they're transgressing this limit, right? Um, the boundary is set conceptually by a concept in liberal thought known as the harm principle. You can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't harm other people. But then, it, that really doesn't solve the question, it's just, a, it's just a way of actually framing it. Well, what does harm other people? Uh, I have not abandoned the cigarette smoking uh, example, in case you were wondering, like, well, where the hell are we going with this? Uh, or did that just drop off? No. Cigarette smoking, when I was growing up and for into my adult life, was not considered to transgress this boundary. Right? It was considered to be an individual choice, and it was known that it was harming the smoker, and it was also accepted that in a freedom-loving society where we let people rule themselves, that even though to a lot of people that choice seemed not like a smart one, 
uh, we allow them to make that choice. The idea that smoke, secondhand smoke, not the smoke I inhale into my lungs, but the smoke I exhale out into the world, uh, that's secondhand smoke. The idea that that actually harms other people, that that impacts their health negatively without them choosing it, that idea started to gain traction in the 1980s, it gained a lot of traction in the 1990s, and by the end of the 1990s, the idea that a cigarette smoker was only harming themselves was considered to be completely ridiculous, and there was a different answer to where is that boundary. And smoking fell on the acceptable side of the harm principle for you know, most of human history up until the 1980s or 1990s, and now, at least in America and in a lot of places uh, as well, I mean, Ireland banned smoking before Seattle did, so I, when that happened, I was living in Seattle, I was like, wow, if Ireland is actually banning smoking uh, in bars, then that's pretty serious. But it went from being that this boundary was, okay, you're, you're inside your uh, acceptable sphere of liberty by smoking because you're only harming yourself. And even though we think, a lot of us think that's stupid, that's what freedom means, you can harm yourself. Um, people don't go to the dentist and their teeth rot and they have pain and they have cavities. And when you say, well, you know, you should have gone to the dentist, but you freely chose not to and so you live out the consequences of your freedom. That's part of what uh, a lot of rule themselves uh, entails is having them live out the consequences of their choices. As soon as their choices, though, have consequences for other people, and we acknowledge that they've crossed that boundary, then it becomes legitimate, not in the name of paternalism, like you shouldn't be smoking because it's harmful to you, but in the name of protecting everybody else's liberty, uh, then we can stop people from engaging in certain kinds of behaviors. It's pretty much been decided. Our culture has landed on the fact that secondhand smoke is a direct harm. It's harmful enough to other people that we're gonna say that you can't smoke around people in, uh, unless they clearly have voluntarily put themselves uh, in the place to inhale your secondhand smoke. You can't smoke in classrooms, you can't smoke in airplanes, you can't smoke in restaurants and bars, public places, and when you're, you can smoke in your own home, and you can smoke in certain public places, but it has to be clear that the people who are inhaling that smoke have chosen to do so instead of are incidentally doing so. Um, that, those rules, you could see those rules as a, the act of a paternalist society that's looking out for our well-being and telling us how to live our lives uh, so that we will actually achieve this, this societal goal of well-being. You could see it that way, but there is a, there's definitely a way, a, a, a liberal way of seeing this as a necessary protection of everybody's freedom because it is actually making sure that uh, mo th those of you who don't smoke are not being interfered, our health is not being interfered with by people who do smoke, unless we choose to, right? Like if someone's smoking a cigarette and I go over and sit next to them and deeply inhale or whatever inhale their secondhand smoke, I've chosen, it's, 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 it's a similar choice to actually lighting up a cigarette myself. So there will be rules that restrict our behavior, that restrict our choices, and those rules are absolutely necessary, right? If we, if we don't have rules that limit other people's choices, then we don't really have a lack of interference and we don't really have a meaningful form of liberty in our society. So where is that boundary? And how physical do actions have to be to uh, cross that boundary? So the secondhand smoke is sort of indirectly physical, but it still is pretty physical. What about fear? 
when you create fear in somebody, are you interfering with them? Right? Um, when I was a kid, another example of how the world has changed, when I was a kid, there were bullies uh, in schools, and it was kind of accepted. Right? Um, there are still bullies in schools, but it's totally not accepted anymore. Right? It's, there's a zero tolerance policy, at least in the schools that my kids have gone to and all, and all the people who I've heard uh, whose kids go to schools. There's a zero tolerance for bullying. And uh, the idea being that bullies create an environment of fear that actually negatively impacts other people. And so it's a bullying, even if you're, you know, if you're a bully and you don't actually then go up to some kid and shake him down for their lunch money or smack him around or, or, or physically harm them, even if you don't do any of that stuff, the presence of that or the, and bullying now has a bigger definition, like there's cyberbullying too, right? Like making fun of people uh, um, through social media or harassing them in certain ways. Like there are lots of ways to, to negatively impact people's physical and emotional well-being, right? Um, that's now seen, even just, even just saying mean things on social media about somebody can be seen as an interference with their freedom. Right? Like, oh my god, I can't believe you wore that shirt, or whatever, whatever mean bully, middle school type bullies say. Uh, and then the person's like, well, I'm not going to wear that shirt. Like, did you choose not to wear that shirt, or were you frightened into not wearing that shirt? And that is actually, uh, you know, an important distinction, because one of those is a free choice. Be like, you know what? That shirt makes me unpopular, and I don't like being unpopular, so I'm not going to wear that shirt. That's a free choice. But... Uh, that shirt makes me exposed to ridicule and bullying, and I, that, 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 that feels bad. I'm not going to wear that shirt. That isn't really a free choice. Or, or is it? Right? And some people are going to say that they're both the same thing. Right? If you choose not to wear the shirt because you don't want to be unpopular, that's a free choice. If you choose not to wear the shirt because you don't want the psychological and emotional turmoil that comes with uh, being ridiculed for wearing uh, that shirt, that's a free choice as well. Other people will say those are two different kinds of things. That first one where you choose to not wear the shirt because you want to be popular and part of your conception of the good is to be happy and popular uh, is a way you think you're going to get towards that. That's a free choice. The other one is not because you've essentially been psychologically manipulated. Not physically manipulated, but psychologically manipulated. Um, when I was younger, basically the concept of bullying as a psychological and emotional uh, um, uh, regime didn't exist. If a bully took your lunch money or beat you up or pushed you down in the playground, they would get in trouble for that act, right? It's not that bullies weren't punished when I was uh, younger. It's just that they were punished for the actual physical acts, the transgressions, the easy cases where they crossed the harm principle. You know, you're walking down, you're walking through the through uh, the lunchroom. You have your money. You're about to buy your lunch. The bully comes up and smacks your face, takes your money, and uh, goes and you know probably buys drugs with it, right? Whatever. Uh, that that clearly that person that bully is has clearly transgressed the harm principle, and they they will be punished. Um, the notion that uh, there's other kinds of harms that bullies can perpetrate that are psychological and emotional, that are not directly physical, that's a relatively new idea. And it's a different answer to where is that boundary than the dominant answer uh, was when I was growing up. Now, one of the things about both of these examples, the secondhand smoke and the bullying, these are, these are cases where the boundary has moved in my lifetime. Um, and this is actually relatively common in terms of it living in a free society. The boundary moves. And 
uh, it doesn't always move in the same direction, but typically it's, in our society it's been moving in a direction where we're admitting more things to the list of uh, crossing that boundary rather than taking things off the list. But what there always is, is controversy over this question. There are still people who, and it's not even all older people, but it primarily is, who think that the way that bullying is handled uh, these days, and who think that the way the secondhand smoke is handled these days, is too much of a limitation on our liberty. It's actually not limiting our liberty in a necessary way to protect the liberty of others. It's actually just, it's, it's a soft form of tyranny. It's making us, it's limiting our choices, not so that other people have uh, an equivalent amount of freedom that we have, which is what uh, the harm principle is intended to do, but it limits our freedom. That we're, de we're bound to have these kinds of arguments. This question and this question are both going to be controversial. There is no right answer to either of these questions. Uh, and so one of the things that happens in a liberal society where there's a commitment to this concept, the idea that people should be able to rule themselves, that is the fundamental uh, principle of a liberal society. And when you have a liberty-loving society, you're dedicated to that. That still doesn't tell us everything because we're going to have to answer both of these questions. And we're going to argue because the answers to these questions are controversial. And when different people answer these questions differently, we're going to have different versions of liberty. Um, and one of the things that also happens is that, one, of course, we get, these questions will be answered differently. There's also a fundamental trade-off between positive and negative liberty. And there's actually also an inherent cost built into negative liberty. And the inherent cost is based on the fact that uh, this boundary is not self-enforcing. First of all, where the boundary is is controversial. So some people are going to think the boundary is here, and some people are going to think the boundary is here. And so even if there's no enforcement necessary, we're going to have a diversity of behaviors, and that's going to cause conflict. Um, so to even set the boundary in the first place, we need some kind of entity, some kind of system, and that's the political system. The way it's worked out in our world is that's the government, right? The government sets that boundary and uh, enforces that boundary. So the boundary is not self-setting because it's controversial where it is, and once the boundary is set, it's not self-enforcing. The inherent cost here is that to set and enforce the boundary are costly in terms of resources. You have to, and just to, to make it you know, extremely easy and simple and straightforward, it costs money, right? In order to have an entity that makes these rules, that sets this boundary, and without a boundary there's no meaningful liberty, but that sets the boundary, you have to have uh, a government, and people aren't gonna just work for free. Some people will work for free, but not everybody will, so it's gonna cost. Um, and in order to enforce the rules that, the, that, that are set by these people, you have to have police. And in order to protect your society from invasion uh, externally, you have to have some kind of uh, military. These are all inherent costs of having a liberty-loving society. And in order to pay for those costs, you have to interfere with other people. 
by taking their money from them. You cannot pay for a rule setting and enforcement regime of any kind based purely on voluntary contributions. I mean, maybe you can in a very small scale society, in you know, some kind of uh, uh, utopian commune or intentional community, maybe you can have purely voluntary, but at any sort of scale, any kind of world that we really live in, you're gonna have to forcibly extract resources. Usually it's just gonna be taxing people for their money. And that's a form of interference, right? I have this money, I earned this money, free exchanges got me this money, and now you're gonna take it away from me? Yes, we're gonna take it away from you, and we're gonna take it away from you because it's inherent in the concept of liberty that we have to uh, create a boundary and we have to control that boundary. So that's another source of controversy, right? How are we going to uh, determine how those costs are borne, right? What form of taxation? Uh, who gets taxed more than other people? Uh, what is the least invasive way? Because it's going to be invasive. We're going to be interfering with people in some way. What's the least invasive way to pay for the enforcement of our negative liberty? People are going to have different ideas about that. Um, so that's already one thing. The trade-off is that we now have another cost because resources always cost, right? So we have two costs. One is to set and police the boundary of negative liberty. The other one is to provide the resources that are necessary. And the reason why that's a cost, again, there could be voluntary contribution. Right? People could voluntarily contribute time and money to an educational system that provides the basic exposure to information and ideas and the basic intellectual skills for people to make choices. But that's probably not going to happen. Um, not enough voluntary contributions are going to be made to be able to provide these resources to everybody. Right? Because all of this stuff has to be done for everybody. It can't just be done for you or me or some small group of people. To have a liberty-loving society, the conditions for liberty the negative and positive conditions have to be met for everybody, or at least for as many of everybody as possible. Right? There's always going to be, in any human system, there's going to be some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, uh, failure at the margins. But in order to make sure everybody's protected and everybody has these resources, is going to be a costly endeavor. When you pay for resources, that's the big trade-off. You're taking, again, more of people's uh, choice. You're interfering with them more. So, put in its simplest way, the more you put into positive liberty, the more you take away from negative liberty. The more you protect negative liberty, the less you give over to positive liberty. So if we're going to have a very low level of taxation to make sure that we have as little interference as possible, right? We pay for the inherent costs, we pay for the very most minimal form of uh, education necessary, but that's it. We're really privileging negative liberty. That's going to mean we have a diminished uh, supply of positive liberty, and if we have a significantly diminished supply of positive liberty, do we actually meet the dual conditions for having a, uh, a free society, right? Both of these conditions have to be met. You have to not be interfered with by others, and you have to have the ability to exercise options. If you don't provide resources to people, that's going to diminish this. Um, yet, for every resource that's provided, it's going to diminish this. So there is an inherent trade-off. There's an inherent cost within negative liberty, and then there's an inherent trade-off between negative and positive liberty. 
these are the other ways in which we get all kinds of different conceptions of liberty. So the which liberty is relevant. It's all within this framework, but I answer this question differently than you do. I answer this question differently than you. I balance the amount of positive liberty and the amount of negative liberty differently than you do. Even though I'm using the same terms, I'm talking about negative and positive liberty, I'm answering the same questions, we're having the exact same conversation, we agree that this is the proper definition of liberty, we agree that uh, uh, for a liberty-loving society ought to be one where everybody has the same amount of liberty. We agree on all these things, but we have different answers and we make different trade-offs. We're going to have very different conceptions of what liberty in a meaningful sense in our society is, and we're going to differ. And quite a lot of politics in a liberty-loving society, if not all of politics, but at least a giant chunk of it, is dedicated to these battles. Um, and in America, there are, there are political issues that don't necessarily center around um, this, like the, the, the different balancing and the different uh, answers to these questions, but they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty few and far between. Most questions in our political system, most controversies, can be boiled down to people answering these things uh, in different ways. Let me just give you uh, sort of the, the, the broad overview, and I'm going to paint in uh, very uh, broad strokes in this particular portion. In America, there are liberals and conservatives, and I choose to call those liberals with a small L and conservatives with a small C because both liberals and conservatives in America are actually liberals with a capital L. They are liberty-loving uh, people. We will get to later in the term conservative with a capital C. Conservatism with a capital C is a political perspective that is opposed to liberalism with a capital L. It's a perspective that says that liberty shouldn't be the primary uh, value uh, driving our political system or driving society. It should be tradition and organic uh, social hierarchies. Um, that's capital C conservatism. Now we do have some capital C conservatives in America, but a lot of our conservatives, and even you know many of our conservatives are a mixture of small C and capital C, but a lot of our conservatives are small C who, who are liberty loving and have a different view on this balance than liberals with a small L, right? Um, just broadly, if you privilege negative liberty over positive liberty, if you're more interested in minimizing interference, even at the cost of reducing the resources available to people to uh, have, in Dewey's terms, effective freedom, then you're probably a conservative. If you are more interested in making sure that uh, there is a robust set of resources available to people so they have a true ability to exercise their options if you're really focusing more on effective freedom, uh, which is, I think, what Dewey is leaning in this particular direction, um, then you're a liberal with a small L. Um, and that, that's not the only uh, difference between liberals and conservatives, but that's a pretty, I would say, pretty accurate if very you know, uh, broad brush kind of way of dividing up liberals and conservatives. Which direction do you lean in? Um, among liberals, what differentiates different versions of liberalism that range from, say, more moderate liberalism to, uh, to uh, socialist uh, and social democrats and so all, there's a bunch of different labels, but what differentiates those people is typically their answer to this question, what other resources, right? Um, or how strongly they balance, or how strongly they create this trade-off. Like, some liberals think that really 
formal freedom is just formal freedom. Lack of interference, like it doesn't do anybody any good. What we really need, let's not pay attention to minimizing regulations and rules and enforcement. Let's, let's, let's forget about that because what really matters is people need to have the ability to exercise options and we need to give them a robust set of resources. Um, other liberals might say, well, I do think it's important to strike some kind of balance. I'm not going to overfill the positive side. I'm going to try to have a balance between these two. That's a more moderate liberal. But even among liberals who say, we have to have a, a strong set of positive liberty. We have to have a lot of resources. Those people will differ on this answer. Right? Um, is healthcare on that list? Most liberals who heavily balance in this direction are going to definitely say we need education. They're going to definitely say we need uh, uh, realistic opportunities. And then some of them are going to say we also need guaranteed health care so that people don't have to worry about their, their physical and emotional well-being all the time. Because if they are, then they're not going to be able to exercise realistic options. And other people are going to say, no, 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 we really need a lot of opportunities, but we don't need guaranteed health care. So there are policy disagreements within the liberal camp. There are policy disagreements within conservatives, because some conservatives could say secondhand smoke is bullshit, and other conservatives could say, no, secondhand smoke is a real harm, and it is a necessary restriction on our liberty to have these particular kinds of rules. And they will argue, uh, even though both of those conservatives might say, positive liberty, we, we should have as little as possible of that so we can have as much negative liberty as possible. There will be then those policy disagreements within there. And then, of course, at the detailed level, you know, let's say that you do agree that healthcare, uh, two people do agree that healthcare is a fundamental uh, necessity, that we can't have a liberty-loving society where people are spending most of their energy and resources just maintaining their wellness and that they're constantly vulnerable to uh, healthcare-related bankruptcies. How are we going to make sure that this resource is provided? Some of them are going to say we need a socialized system, other people are going to say we need a heavily subsidized system, other people are going to say we need a public option. So there are going to be obviously differences. So hopefully you can see, and this could be generalized to so many different uh, political topics, and you could apply this in all the different places that you see political disagreements and policy uh, diversity, even within the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, is that people are answering these fundamental questions of liberty in different ways and arguing about the details. Right? Uh, in terms of education, right, at this point, our society has agreed that the basic minimum of education that's needed to be able to have a, a citizenry that's capable of exercising options is at least an eighth grade education, because that's what's required by law, and is up to a 12th grade education, because that's what's paid for for everybody for free. Um, and now there are some people who are saying, well, no, it actually it's a college education is necessary to be able to have a level of intellectual skills and exposure to ideas uh, that would enable you to exercise real options. Without a college education, or at least the opportunity to have a college education, you're really going to be at the mercy of uh, information and uh, manipulation and societal forces that will significantly attenuate your free choice. Uh, so there, that's, that's a difference, and that, that's an evolution. Society has changed enough where it makes sense to even introduce the question, is a college education a necessary educational resource? So the answer to this question, what are the resources, changes over time. A right? hundred years ago, nobody was talking about uh, healthcare as uh, a fundamental resource that was necessary. Um, no one was talking about a college education being necessary, and now those questions have entered uh, the liberal discourse about what resources 
are necessary. Same thing is true on the negative side. 100 years ago, 30 years ago, nobody was talking about cigarette smoke as a violation of the harm principle. They were talking about cigarette smoke as a harm, an individual harm, and that has changed. Um, uh, 30 years ago, nobody was talking about emotional and psychological bullying as being a violation of the harm principle, and now we are. So things change in society, technologically, uh, culturally, that uh, change the way people address these questions. But these questions have always been at the heart of the dispute among liberals, among those who value liberty as the primary top value in society. They're going to have a lot of different views. And it's, it's difficult because there's no right answer to either of these questions, and there's no correct set of trade-offs. What is the right way to balance uh, positive and negative liberty? There is no right answer. So what a liberal society actually is, partly, is a society that's constantly working out the meaning of what liberty itself is. That is actually what uh, all of the uh, members of the, li the liberal family of ideas have in common. They are all saying, this is the right answer to this balance, to these questions. And other people saying, no, that's not the right answer. So it's essentially, it's a, it's a disputatious family. It's a family that's arguing. They are arguing about these particular questions. Uh, and they're arguing about the trade-off. Uh, but they all have the fundamental commitment to making sure that people can rule themselves and they answer the question, what is necessary to rule yourself, uh, differently. They all know that these are both necessary but not sufficient conditions. Lack of interference, resources and options. One of them by themselves is not enough. The two of them together are enough, but they involve a trade-off. And so what is that proper balancing? This is the kind of uh, thing that you're going to need to be looking for as we read the different liberal thinkers, and I'm going to refer back to constantly when we talk about uh, arguments within liberalism. Um, one thing you might be noting as I wrap up, if you did the uh, Isaiah Berlin reading, you're maybe saying to yourself, wait a minute, he talks about positive liberty, and he doesn't talk about it at all in this particular way. And that is true. Uh, to Berlin, Positive liberty is, there's, there's this version of it, and he does indicate in, in the reading that, that one of the sides of meaningful liberty is having resources and options. But he directly refers to uh, positive liberty as a dangerous idea and an anti-liberal or an illiberal uh, notion. And I do want to just note right now the difference between what I've said here and his, and they do both deserve the label positive, but they really are two totally different things, right? Berlin is talking about uh, people who use positive liberty not as, well, we need to make sure people have certain set of resources and options to exercise, to, to, to have the ability to exercise those options. He's talking about people who are promoting the notion of self-mastery as positive liberty. And self-mastery relies on a distinction between the higher and lower self. And this is true, and we will read one of the thinkers, Rousseau, who actually does pursue the uh, concept of liberty down this particular avenue, this illiberal avenue um, that Berlin is pointing out, that this is not a liberal interpretation of positive liberty. It might look like it. It might use the same words, but the way conceptually uh, 
the self-mastery philosophers uh, talk about it, it actually isn't trying to make sure that people can rule themselves. Though the language is there, and the reason why the language is there is that this distinction between the higher and the lower self is based on the higher rationality and the lower base instincts. And that people who are essentially following their base instincts, their uh, emotions, their, uh, their uh, evolutionary needs, their uh, primitive desires, that these people aren't really free because they are slaves to some internal psychological and emotional forces that are not their higher self. Their higher self is losing that battle. So when you just say, you know what, all I really want to do is just, I just want pleasure and I want to be happy and I want to be relaxed and that's how I'm going to live my life. Um, to a liberal, that is as long as you have an exposure to different ideas and you have the intellectual skills to have evaluated that set of choices and, and have it be what you really want, to a, a true liberal, that's fine. We're going to let that person do live their life that way. To someone who is uh, claims to be liberty-loving but is taking this self-mastery approach that Berlin talks about, society is not going to let that person live out their lower self. They're going to say, well, you know, you have a higher self. Your higher self is your rational self, and your rational self is actually you're connected to a community. You're, you're part of a, of a, of a general uh, uh, community that's united by a common good, and you are not contributing to that common good. So we are going to force you to be free. And this is actually the, the, the thing that gets Berlin uh, most worked up, and I think he's justifiably pointing out that this is, this is actually bending the concept of liberty so that it, it's using that word, but it's actually then bending it beyond recognition. You can force people to be free. if you're going to make them live out their higher self. And even worse than that, you're going to tell them what their higher self is. And that is something, when we, when we get to Rousseau in a few weeks, uh, we're going to definitely see how this plays out in, in, a, in a pretty detailed way. But Berlin wants to point out that like, that is a warping, and that doesn't deserve the same name. You're going to use the same vocabulary, maybe, the term liberty, but let's know that when you're using the word liberty in a sentence that you're going to your, your liberty means being sometimes being forced to be free, that we're not really talking about the same family of ideas, right? It has the same vocabulary. It's like two different families that both have the last name of Smith, right? Uh, they're, they're not related by blood or genetics at all. They just both have the name Smith. It's the same thing, right? Self-mastery philosophies are illiberal. Now, that doesn't mean that they're wrong or inferior. Um, it could be that the better way, and this is part of what these self-mastery philosophers are, philosophers are arguing too, it could be that the better way to have a political system is to have at the center of it not liberty as the primary value that wins in all battles when there's, when there's trade-offs and that is our primary focus, but at the center of our political system should be self-mastery, should be uh, making sure that people come together in a, uh, um, as members of a community, that we are tied together by uh, more than separates us. And so liberty it shouldn't be the central value. That's okay, right? Like it's, it's okay to have, that, to, to have that perspective. That makes you an illiberal thinker, but then illiberal wouldn't be a bad, wouldn't be a bad word. So 
there is a real, there can be a real battle, a true battle between the philosophy of self-mastery and uh, the philosophy of, of liberalism. It's just that we should note, and I think uh, Berlin does a really good job pointing out to us, why it's dangerous to allow this philosophy to sneak into the liberal discourse. It is, it doesn't belong there. It is a disputant, a, a real combatant in the broader ba battle among values. But if you say liberty is the central value, ruling yourself is the central value of society, don't be essentially lured into a self-mastery philosophy because what you're doing is actually throwing liberty away for something else. Um, and to Berlin, he calls this, this is, this is uh, the dangerous version of positive liberty. And that's not at all the one that I mean. So for, for those of you who did the reading and you're, you, know, you spent an hour listening to me talk about positive liberty, and like, that's not what Berlin is saying at all. Absolutely correct. That is not what Berlin is saying at all. All right, well, that is uh, the class on which liberty, hopefully this has given you a sense of how people who are committed to this value, and who even share a sort of more uh, articulated definition of it, and who share the concept that both of these are necessary but not sufficient conditions for having a individual liberty and having a liberty-loving society, that those people can still have widely varying notions of what liberty is supposed to look like manifested in the world. And the reason why they do is differences about this question, differences about this question, how they handle the inherent costs in, within negative liberty, and how they handle the trade-off of costs between positive and negative liberty. So uh, keep that in mind as we go through. Very complex. Liberty is, I mean, I can fit it on one board, right? So it's not ridiculously complex, uh, but it is a complex set of concepts. We have at least two fundamental questions that are not related to each other. You can answer these very differently uh, um, than each other uh, and uh, still have the same you know, basic set of trade-offs. All of these are independently moving parts, which is what gives us such a great diversity of answers as to what liberty looks like. All right, well, for the next few weeks, we're going to go through different uh, versions of uh, 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 what a liberal society is, political, economic, liberal internationalism, and we're going to look at people who have different, uh, different uh, answers to these questions and different balancing of these. So here we are. We're starting the adventure, end of week one. Um, if you are uh, distracted by the painting, uh, if you find uh, this environment, this recorded uh, uh, lecture, to be uh, not helpful in particular ways, let me know. I really this is an, this is an ongoing experiment, and uh, I'm willing to take both positive and negative feedback from you guys about how this is all going. Uh, I it's fun for me. I love it, right? Uh, but I I'm looking at the camera, and I can't feel uh, anybody's reactions in the room. I can't see anything. So uh, if you want to give me feedback. Please do. I will. I, I should probably create an anonymous uh, feedback uh, mechanism, like a dis an anonymous discussion board on the DTL page, which probably I will do, so that you can give me your feedback without worrying that it's going to affect your grade or affect how I think of you. All right, that's uh, just a little bit of classroom business, and there's no reason to keep going. So I'll see you guys next week. Bye.